Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we kick off with this week's Spike podcast, I just wanted to let you know about an extra special live event we're hosting. The great Rod Liddell, columnist, author and scourge of metropolitan liberals, will be joining Brendan O'Neill in conversation on Zoom on the 15th of June. And you can be a part of it. Tickets are either £5 each or you can get a free ticket if you sign up to become a Spiked supporter. Anyone who donates £5 or more per month or £50 or more per year is eligible to become a Spiked supporter. So if you want to see Rod Liddell and Brendan O'Neill live on the 15th of June, the best way to do it is to become a Spiked supporter. You can do that by going to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. Or if you'd just like to book for Rod and Brendan, go to spiked-online.com forward slash events. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week, as ever, we have Spiked deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the circus around Dominic Cummings, the ban on gas boilers, microaggressions at Cambridge and race after George Floyd. Dominic Cummings' damning testimony describes a chaotic government ill-prepared to face a global pandemic. The government rhetoric was we put a shield around care homes and blah, blah. It's complete nonsense. We did everything we could to protect the NHS. I've been dealing with getting the vaccination rollout going and saving lives. What would have happened here is, essentially, in my opinion, you'd have had a kind of dictator. Former advisor Dominic Cummings gave evidence to Parliament in a blockbuster, more than seven-hour session this week. Tom, I, I won't get you to, get you to summarise everything he said, mm. obviously, but is there anything you want to pick out from it? Well, there was so much, so many you know, instances of score settling, so many spicy little news lines, a uh, very extended tirade against Matt Hancock, which was one of its <laughs> redeeming features, definitely. But as you say, there was just so much in it. I think one of the things that broadly irked me about the whole thing because I think we've got to take everything he says with a huge pinch of salt. It's yeah. fascinating that so many people who spent so long calling him this nefarious liar are now treating him as some sort of noble whistleblower because he aligns with their prejudices. But I think particularly if this is a bit of a whiff of what the kind of future debate and the public inquiry and all that stuff is going to be like, we are very much trapped in a discussion about why didn't we lock down earlier, for yeah. longer, harder enough. Cummings being of that view, broadly speaking, feeds into that perfectly. My concern is that that's really the only parameters for the debate going so far. Mm. That was really all that he was talking about. Even the more mad things he came out with, which we'll probably get into, you know, at one point suggesting that there should be some sort of COVID dictator in order to run policy, was almost just kind of papered over because the narrative is that the failure was not locking down harder enough. Any concerns about civil liberties, et cetera, can kind of go by the by. And I think it was a bit of a taste of things to come in that respect, putting aside all of the score settling and the Spider-Man memes and all the funny things. That, I think, is the message, really, that we can take away from this, certainly. Yeah, I mean, Ella, did we actually, you know, learn any new facts or learn anything about how the government handled the pandemic? I mean, we knew they were rubbish before, but it, it seemed to be mostly score settling, as Tom said, his opinions about various people. No, pretty much he said that everyone was rubbish apart from people that agreed with his theories, like you <laughs> pointed out in your column, Fraser. And it was just, you know, seven and a half hours or however long it ran on for of Dominic Cummings taking centre stage, doing what he loves to do, which is just behave like a megalomaniac. Mm. And actually, you know, all those people that for the last sort of, you know, two years in which he's been sort of at the centre of, 
power have painted him as this Machiavellian, incredibly powerful, incredibly evil, you know, political figure who was to be, you know, who was terrifying and was to be treated as a threat. And in fact, you listen to what he says and in actually, in fact, that kingly COVID dictator point shows that he really is just a run of the mill technocrat who actually wishes that the pandemic had been managed a lot tighter mm. by a lot fewer people, people like him, and that there had been no democratic input. So the whole link of him being this sort of like Brexit mastermind, dastardly, you know, devil is just not true. But I think what it does tell you is rather than anything about interesting about Cummings is this, you know, it might seem like an obvious point, the state of the Conservative Party, that they have these personalities, whether it be, you know, we were talking about Carrie Simmons a few weeks ago, Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson, one of the better things to come out of yesterday, suggesting at one point that he'd get injected with COVID live on telly or something. (laughs) You know, just people without any loyalty, people without any ideas, people who claim and talk to the public about being running everything on the science, running everything on the data. Like, you know, we are, we are a tight ship. And then you, what Cummings has done is giving us an insight into how completely disorientated and actually scarily disorganized the Conservative Mm. Party are. Yeah, with nothing to sort of hold them together, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I suppose Cummings having no loyalty to the Tory party and all that. I mean, people were kind of shocked by how explosive and explicit he was, but Mm. that's because he was always this sort of hired hand. He was there to exact his own agenda, didn't really care about the Tory party thought most Tory MPs, whether it was on Brexit or COVID or anything else, were just a bunch of idiots, basically. Um, And I think in a way, you know, there's part of his critique, if you like, which is accurate, his critique of the British state in general, insofar as it's run by cliques of so-called experts who are basically bluffers, charlatans, struck by groupthink, often pushing completely dodgy theories, and that they get things wrong time and time and time again with no comeback whatsoever. That's entirely true. But at the Mm. same time, as Ella was saying, this is very much his view that society should be run by experts, but just the right kinds of experts. His data geeks, his weirdos. A big algorithm. A big algorithm. (laughs) A dictatorship of weirdos, as we said on Spike this week. That's kind of his vision. And it just gives the lie to any association he had really with the sort of democratic spirit of Brexit. I mean, he saw the European Union as a sort of bureaucratic impediment to the things he wanted to do Mm. in government and all the rest of it. So that's really been exploded. But again, I think two things can kind of be true at the same time, one of which is that COVID exposed this inability of the state to provide very basic things, particularly in times of crisis, the structural problems in the health service, even just the lack of accessibility of data and all these sorts of things, which are fair enough. But at the same time, the one, despite how kind of hollowed out the state has become in some respects, almost because of that, it becomes so authoritarian when, yeah. when shit hits the fan. You know, suddenly it becomes a question about us having to do things, us having to, you know, under pain of legal pressure and the police and all the rest of it give up our liberties it's like those two things almost sit in parallel if you like even if cummings is very much with the authoritarian mind it seems like those two things kind of have some sort of relationship with each other yeah and i think there is something into this fact that you know cummings clearly has a great deal of contempt for a lot of politicians i mean on some level that's understandable if they're if they're particularly useless you know if he thinks boris is unfit to be pm having seen how he operates that's that's a fair enough opinion but he he does also just has contempt for the whole system, not just the civil service, but also the democratic system. You know, the way he said that it's outrageous that our system delivered us a choice between Boris Johnson and and Jeremy Corbyn. Well, you know, actually the democratic system is preferable to this kind of King COVID as we've been talking about. That was a completely outrageous moment and Mm. really made me laugh when he said, you know, we're lions led by donkeys and went into this kind of spiel that was like, 
a teenage boy who's having to explain why he's cheated on his girlfriend, you know, saying like, it's absolutely outrageous that I even ever got to go out with you. Like, how did I ever <laughs> get this power? This is crazy. Oh, I'm so brilliant and wonderful. It was like the worst kind of humble brag, master mm. self-deprecation. But really what it was about was saying it was, it was completely disingenuous because it was, it was denying the fact that the reason why, as Tom says, he was brought in wasn't to shake things up and wasn't because the Conservative Party was necessarily having a complete ideological rethink around democratic lines, but because it was sort of desperately trying to get a handle after Brexit and what it could do with this, these new voters that had lended its vote. And in, you know, the test of coronavirus and the pandemic of whether or not you really do believe in democracy, we've mentioned on this podcast time and time again, they've failed. Mm. And so Cummings is a charlatan, but also Boris Johnson and the rest of them are too, when they try and pretend to be these kind of populist figures. But also it's like that, that kind of man of principle routine, um, you Mm. know, was quite interesting because we should remember he was laying some very serious allegations at the feet of the government not just in terms of being crap but also he raised the issue of care homes and you know pushing covid infected patients as it turns out into care homes not testing them therefore seeding all of these outbreaks amongst the most vulnerable people in society talking about these tremendous screw-ups and yet we have to remember that he walked out of government because of factional infighting in number 10 you yeah. know because princess nutnut was in ascendance and certain people weren't getting promoted and he got edged out so that's worth remembering but i think it was, was also interesting because at one point during the seven plus hours or whatever it was yesterday where one shocking allegation rings around twitter when he's talking again about the care home thing in particular and i was just so struck in that moment by people were almost treating this as if it was news yeah and I think that's the other thing is that because of the way the debate has been, because it's only ever been about why didn't we lock down harder early enough, mm. whatever, some of these fundamental mistakes, some of these things which really could have cost lives regardless of you know your approach to lockdown, if you like, it was obvious that the care homes were something that needed to be protected. All of that got lost because the press in particular spent so much of the past year shaming people for breaking the lockdown and banging on about Barnard Castle. That was yeah. basically it. And I thought it was interesting that even though that had been reported on, the fact that it was almost raised as such a damning indictment, despite the fact we knew this mm. from the beginning of April, I think just tells you something about how the fucked up the narrative has been so far. You know, it's been obsessed with trivialities or it's just been obsessed with enforcing the lockdown effectively. And that was a little glimmer as well, I think, that we saw in and amongst all the other circus-like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> statements that came out yesterday. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that brings us on nicely to the, to the discussion about the media because you know, there has been a kind of complete transformation from, it was it was actually a year ago this week when Dominic Cummings did his, you know, Rose Garden interview. So, you know, we've gone from practically overnight because they hadn't changed their opinion about him all year from sort of the media having Dom derangement syndrome to suddenly this being the media event of the whole year. And everyone taking his allegations very seriously, as you say, Tom, treating them as if treating some of them, which are just opinions as news and revelations, you know, when they're really just his damning view. Um, what did you make of that? Well, if you remember back to the time when he was in the Rose Garden, the general sense among the media wasn't just the salacious aspect of it, but there was a, there was a kind of visceral hatred for him, um, and an attempt to kind of suggest why has this man been allowed to do this? So there was the whole nature of the trip to Barnard Castle, but there was a kind of, 
a sense of he should be wiped off the face of the earth. He never can have any kind of say in politics any longer. Mm. And in, as you say, in a year, which really isn't a long time in, in politics, he's now the kind of hero. He's been painted by lots of people, Beth Rigby and others who have been, as Tom says, some of the most vociferous pro-lockdown voices, despite themselves having their equivalents of Barnard Castles with Christmas parties and all that kind of thing. <laughs> Now are simply because he does the really quite basic thing of just slagging off the government, slagging off the Tories and slagging off Boris Johnson in particular, then he's a hero. And it shows you the fickle nature, but also the dangerous power of the media, which I think what Tom was sort of alluding to is that really so much of what the government has done in relation to um, lockdown measures has been led by the media. You just have to take the recent fuss about the local restrictions or semi-local restrictions in and around Bolton and places where there are spikes of the Indian variant. The government published this useless information on the website and the media pipes up and says, hang on a minute, what are you doing? And then the government changes. And it's just this really toxic relationship where you're thinking who is actually in charge here. And that's a real problem for democracy. I love that feeling you get when you learn something new. That's exactly what I get every time I watch or listen to The Great Courses Plus. This streaming service is a must-have. And I've got an incredible deal for listeners to the Spiked podcast. You can get a free trial plus 20% off when you sign up for the annual membership. But you have to go to our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. There's a world of knowledge with The Great Courses Plus for less than most of us would spend on coffee each month. I would really recommend getting stuck into the course, The Great Revolutions of Modern History. This course gives you insight into the forces that shaped our political and cultural world today. It'll take you back in time and around the world to examine some of history's most momentous and influential political transformations. You'll learn about the influence of ideology, about the revolutions that succeeded and failed, how they come to realise their ideals or sometimes degenerate into authoritarianism or chaos. With The Great Courses Plus, you'll get thousands of hours of fascinating content across hundreds of topics, like understanding the mysteries of human behaviour, or the history of ancient Greece, or you can even learn how to play chess. With access to video, audio and guidebooks, and with new content added every month, you can watch or listen anywhere at any time to The Great Courses Plus. Don't miss out on this great deal. Go now to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked to get your free trial. And spiked listeners will also get 20% off the annual membership. Again, just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. Another major development this week was that gas boilers will be banned from all new built homes from 2025 and stripped out of other homes by 2035 as part of the government's net zero policy. Now, this, these things often sound quite arcane and maybe a bit far in the future, but mm. this is going to have a huge impact on people's lives, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's, it's almost like the first taste of the proper impact of net zero because so far it's been something that's really only been talked about in Westminster in the press you know you had I think it was back in 2017 this, the net zero commitment kind of nodded through parliament mm. made its way into all the parties manifestos basically in one form or another under one branding or another but it hasn't really ever been front and center because both the kind of economic 
consequences and the scale of it is only really starting to crest. And I think the boilers mm. thing is one kind of seemingly mundane but quite tangible kind of example of that. You know, Ben Powell wrote about this this week. You know, it's only something like 1.7 million homes actually depend on electric heating. So this yeah. is a, this is a huge project to try and retrofit <laughs> all of these places. People, you know, the estimates suggest it costs as much as £10,000 to do this. This is something where people are going to be potentially facing financial penalties if they don't bring their house up to spec. And I think what green activists, having kind of won a lot of wins amongst the commentariat and the political set in recent years, are going to start to get a taste of a public backlash, which has so far only really been nascent. Because yeah. in any situation where the reality of these policies is presented to people. You think about the Australian election a few years ago, you think about the Gilets jaunes, whatever. It's quite clear that people begin to interpret it, rightly in my view, as basically putting the question of their living standards and their quality of life and saying, we've got to trade that against this bigger goal to save the environment via means and technologies which aren't proven yet yeah. <laughs> and are incredibly expensive. So and we crap. <laughs> and crap as it turns out. So this is, you know, however much Boris Johnson wants to say we're going to become the Saudi Arabia of wind. I mean, uh, aside from being a funny formulation, it's also just for the birds. So I think it's just a taste of things to come really. It's interesting that you're starting to see some Tory backbenchers, some bunch of people coming up about this because this has the beginnings, if you like, of being a real fault line and a, and a battle in politics. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, it's, it's very easy when people answer polls to say, do you agree that we should do some do more about climate change? Mm. Yes. Who would disagree with that? You'd have to be crazy. But then when, yeah, when these things actually sort of show up and when the, you know, the harsh reality of it is put in your face, then people are going to get cold feet. You know, it's not just the £10,000 that you have to spend on this new piece of technology, on these on these heat pumps. It's all of the disruption that it's going to take. You know, you're going to have to probably move out of your house for a month while the insulation is done. You know, some estimates say it might even cost as much as rebuilding your house to do some of these changes. And then at the end of that, the technology is crap. It takes nearly a day to heat your home to not quite room temperature. And you can see that actually, yes, this is going to store up real, real problems for whichever government is in charge by the time this really rolls out. Yeah, the quality of life point is is crucial to this because these heat bumps are not just ineffective and a nuisance, as you say. But I mean, you know, not everyone lives in a mansion who can afford to fit their roof with solar panels and, you know, have a pig and chickens in the back garden and live the good life. If you're living in a small cramped flat, which many, many people live in, and these heat pumps, which are like the size of a massive cupboard, you have to up the size of your radiators, you have to completely change the layout of your house, basically, in order to have these crappy bits of technology, that's going to affect your quality of life. There'll also be lots and lots of people who are living in mouldy, damp with floors that are rubbish, who will say, oh, hang on a minute, if you're going to retrofit this, do you mind retrofitting the rest of my house? Because I'm actually living in that sort of states of squalor. Yeah. If there would be much more attractive if the government had a kind of big picture thinking in relation to this or had some level of ambition. You know, we've got a housing crisis. Why not mm. build, you know, new cities? Why not build masses of new houses that have the right kind of technology inbuilt so you don't have to go through all this mm. ridiculous retrofitting nonsense. Yeah. But it's interesting that the resistance to the kind of undemocratic nature of these uh, climate change actions is building. Because I remember I've, I've gone on, on this podcast and elsewhere time and time again about things like the ULEZ, which were, you know, you know, and traffic control and low traffic neighborhoods and uh, green air anti-pollution measures, which basically meant that people had to give up their cars and their vans, which were could have been, you know, a sizable chunk of their assets. They'd be thousands and thousands of pounds and you have to give them up because they don't fit the regulations. No one really 
bother too much about that because it's drivers, it's cars, it's dirty, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. on the face of it, who cares? Now it's people's houses. And I think yeah. it will move incrementally like that until someone eventually says, hang on a minute. Okay. I don't mind recycling. I don't mind go, you know, putting my food in a different bin to the rest of my plastics, but you want me to completely change my life and my house and my ability to have a good life and a warm house. I'm not doing mm. that. And do you think, I mean, Thomas, isn't the problem that, I mean, there might be pockets of resistance to these individual measures, but there's no real political pushback, certainly not from mainstream politics mm-hmm. to, the, I guess, the environmentalist yeah. creed that gives rise to these things, that thinks it can push through these these ideas that clearly aren't going to work. There isn't at all. And I think referring to it as the environmentalist creed rather than concern about the climate or whatever is quite important because this is a kind of pre-packaged ideology, if you like. That's why, obviously, it's partly about these people who are concerned about the planet and nature and conservation and all the rest of it. But also they're people who are gripped by the conviction that society's kind of gone a bit too far. Mm. You have to do less. Things should be more expensive because, you know, we're living up at the moment and it's just completely unsustainable. You even see it, you know, within the green movement, people like Michael Schellenberger, who's been on Brendan's podcast, and people like that, the kind of eco-modernists who say... You know, we do need to tackle the climate, but it's not a catastrophe that's waiting 12 years down the road. And also you need to embrace technology in the forms of things like nuclear. But again, the Greens don't like that kind of thing because they don't like production. They don't like people having a higher quality of life. And whilst it has no kind of political expression properly at the moment, apart from a few kind of sparks of it you see in certain countries and all the rest of it, it's going to become more and more of a flashpoint for the simple reason that politics on at least one level is about making people's material existence better yeah people expect their lives to get better they expect to be able to have more money in their pocket and people are starting to realize rightly in my view that this environmentalist movement wants to push them around and wants them to have less that's their answer to everything so the more that becomes clear to people i think the more you'll see some political pushback from it will that come from the political class probably not at least not in its current formulation but it's going to find some way of expressing itself definitely Let's talk a bit about free speech at universities. I know we've talked a lot about that in recent weeks, what with the law and some of the no platforming going on, but there's been an interesting sort of happening at University of Cambridge. Last week, the university tried to introduce a website which basically encouraged students to report their professors for committing microaggressions. They've now taken that down, thankfully, under political pressure. But does anyone want to explain, first of all, what a microaggression is? It's <laughs> <laughs> probably a microaggression to explain what a microaggression is. Yeah, I know, it's outrageous. Is. My so bigotry. <laughs> educate yourself. Yeah. Pretty much anything that isn't that isn't blatant, like using the N-word or a racial epithet, if you're sort of uh, undermining or unkind to someone from a protected characteristic. So if you, for example, don't give someone the same kind of compliment who's black to a white person, or if you ask someone where they're from, or if you mm. say to a woman, I like your dress, or things like that, it's supposedly meant to indicate that you on a micro level have some level of aggression to people from protected characteristics. But in short it's bollocks yeah <laughs> i mean the, yeah some of the examples cambridge gave were raising an eyebrow giving backhanded compliments turning your back on someone which just seems rude you know so a lot of the a lot of these yeah. things are just rudeness rather than <laughs> i don't know you know they're given this political and racial dimension yeah or awkwardness yeah. you know or people <laughs> who ask slightly awkward questions and all the rest of it like the where are you from example and all that kind of stuff i mean a lot of this is just kind of policing etiquette to yeah. some extent and a lot of this stuff is I think bad on that level, because I think if you're constantly trying to encourage a level of racial awareness, particularly on a campus, which is going to be a very, you know, liberal and open place, broadly speaking, 
that's a bad thing. You know, a situation where students in particular, I know this is a university policy, but we've seen these things rise up through students' unions before. Mm. You know, they're at a point in, you know, British history where they've got more reason than ever to feel much more relaxed around one another, you know, for that to be less of an issue, for us to be kind of moving past that. Yet the compulsion is always from student unions and universities, like you must think about it all the time. At the same time, I think there's also a way in which the policing of these microaggressions is either very minor slights or sometimes just perceived slights, mm-hmm. things which aren't necessarily even intended or objectively bad in any kind of sense. It kind of smuggles in a, a level of political censorship as well. There was one example from the Cambridge website talking about basically shooting down a, a member of staff or student who wants to bring the topic of race and racism into the discussion in a learning or work setting, which I think is subtly a form of kind of policing discussion. We know that there's certain types of people on campus and in society who want to racialise everything, mm-hmm. even things where that has no bearing whatsoever. To, so even to say, that's not relevant, or I yeah. think that's wrong, to challenge their lived experience, if you like, is, is something which becomes problematic. Obviously, the pronouns question, all the rest of that, mm-hmm. you start to see how what presents itself as etiquette and is in large part the policing of things which aren't really that big of a deal or the sort of things that people can, you know, work out for themselves, push back if they found something a bit uncomfortable, that's fine. There's also a kind of smuggling of a level of political censorship as well as to say you must see the world from this kind of hyper-racially aware, identitarian sort of lens. That's part of what's getting smuggled in with it. And Ella, do you think there's something in the fact that it's it's Cambridge? You know, this is an elite <laughs> institution. It, it, this is not an FE college or, you know, technical college or anything like that. Yeah, well, I was going to say, you don't often, it's, it's a bit difficult to think of Cambridge Dons as as workers in the same way that you might, you know, think of other disputes. But this it's wild to me that anyone has suggested that it's progressive for employers in the, in the form of an institution like a university to allow, you know, customers in the role of students, which mm. they've unfortunately now become thanks to the commercialization of universities to wrap on the staff to bet this this is basically a snitch website <laughs> of the of the worst kind of order it's unbelievable that and shame on any student that would consider using it it's really at such low behavior and and completely uh, against any kind of progressive views of of workers rights and of how you work these things out it's the classic example of how these supposedly woke or progressive ideas in the form of critical race theory or, or racial awareness or, you know, feminism, anti-sexism things, you know, like one of the microaggressions is if you call a woman a girl, yeah. as if that's like an arrow to the heart of any woman is pathetic, but that, that, that is the kind of progressive thing. And in order to do that progressive thing, you have to be completely reactionary when it comes to class distinctions or solidarity within an institution that often gets sidelined because the main priority is make sure that you are saying the right thing. Make sure that you look like you're saying the right thing. Don't worry about what happens to that professor. Don't worry about what happens to his or her ability to teach. Just make yourself feel mm. better. It's an incredible, it's a monstrous narcissism going on. But it's not, it's not just the dons either. We should remember because you see a lot of these kind of, um, campus microaggression or you know low level kind of uh, racial scandals which get blown all out of proportion affecting some of the other members of staff you know was it at oxford or cambridge where the you had, had the porter yeah. who essentially got pushed out in america there was the smith college example where again i think it was a security guard or somebody who worked in a lunch counter who ended up getting hauled over the coals and shamed for a instance in which they asked why someone was eating lunch in a certain particular area of a college which they weren't allowed to be in and suddenly this gets blown into something as if it's you know the civil rights movement again these people Mm. get shamed these people who are not you know 
tenured professors. These are people who are just, you know, trying to earn a living on a university campus. Then the other thing is that it filters out. Yeah. You know, we were saying this was going to happen for years, and it, it, especially in the past year, it's been perfectly demonstrated that what happens in the universities and in the kind of cultural establishment is now infecting everything else. In the corporate world, there's all these microaggression <laughs> training sessions. You're starting to see it even on kind of smaller level in other forms of workplaces it's setting the agenda for everywhere else. And so we're not just talking about a kind of elitist section of society here or an elite section of society. We're talking about everyone, unfortunately. We talk a lot about the growing power of big tech on this podcast and the dangers that it can present to our freedoms. For instance, did you know the same company that controls half of all online retail will sometimes passively eavesdrop on your private conversations at home? The company that controls 90% of internet searches and probably runs your email service can track everything you do on your smartphone. Big tech is more powerful than most countries, and they profit by exploiting your personal data. But you don't just have to put up with it. You can put a layer of protection between your online activity and the tech juggernauts. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Think about how much of your life is on the internet. Sadly, every site you visit, Every video you watch or message you send gets tracked and data mined. But when you run ExpressVPN on your device, the software hides your IP address. That's something big tech can use to personally identify you. So ExpressVPN makes your activity harder to trace and to sell to advertisers. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. And ExpressVPN does all of this without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by CNET and Wired. What I like most about ExpressVPN is just how easy it is to use. You can download the app on your phone and computer and you tap one button and you're protected. So stop handing over your personal data to the big tech monopoly that mines your activity and sells your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me safe online. Visit expressvpn.com slash spiked. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash spiked to get an extra three months for free. Go to expressvpn.com slash spiked right now to learn more. So finally, let's talk about um, the big anniversary this week, which was the murder of George Floyd. Um, we did a special podcast a few weeks ago on, on George Floyd because of his trial. Um, so let's put aside the question of policing, the question of the murder itself, and let's talk a bit about the kind of politics that sort of emerged from that or has been pushed by that. I mean, Tom, it's fair to say that a certain way of thinking about race has been really institutionalized or that has been really accelerated in the last year. No, definitely. And at the same time, I think it's been become quite clear that there is a not very loud, at this point quite nascent, bristling against that, mm. um, particularly from ethnic minorities. You know, there was a fascinating bit of analysis that New York Times has just put out, yeah. which is talking about what we already knew, but just putting a bit more meat on the bones, which is the rightward shifts at the 2020 election in immigrant and ethnic minority communities. So this is particularly in places where there are a lot of Latinos, South Asians, East Asians. You saw very significant shifts towards Trump, who as was being played up as a white supremacist. You had a Biden um, campaign and now an administration, which has just jumped in with both feet on the kind of racial equity agenda, all yeah. of these identitarian schemes, all the rest of it. So at the same time that you have supposedly this reckoning with racism, 
which as we all know is just the cementing of identitarianism really the two things are not the same if anything identity politics is about reifying races you know we talk about a lot but taking that as red that is largely inspiring the elite and white people. Yeah. I mean, it's not to say that obviously Joe Biden didn't win by large margins amongst a lot of these communities, but he's also sending people in the other direction. The guy who didn't want truck with any of that, and if anything did have obviously some prejudices himself, was actually a more viable, you know, or a more attractive option for many of these voters. And you're seeing a bit of that in the UK as well. So yes, it has, it's definitely emerged, it's definitely kind of cemented itself in the mainstream. But things like that, I think, are indicating that they're beginning to overreach. Can you just explain a bit um, about this concept of equity? I mean, Sean Collins wrote a really good piece of it, yeah. about it on Spiked. I mean, what are some of the examples that have been coming out of Biden's America? Yeah, so equity, which manages to get by because it sounds a bit like equality and I think people think it means the same, but it's not. It's mm. effectively woke racial discrimination, which yeah. is what, as uh, Sean Collins discussed it, so you're seeing both on the federal level but also more on local levels in the US, basically smuggling in racial preferences into, in relation to all kinds of things, certain programs for businesses to get back on their feet, you know, giving priority to ethnic minorities, women, etc. programs for farmers, a slightly more risible example, but a telling one nonetheless is Laurie Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago. Chicago, uh, who announced recently that she would only be giving one-to-one interviews with black or ethnic minority journalists. So it's this idea that you need to essentially practice a form of progressive, quote-unquote, racial discrimination in order to bring things back. And again, it's just not only incredibly divisive, I mean, Mm. Sean makes this point that you don't have to be a social scientist to know that there's going to be a backlash to this. And when you indulge in woke identity politics, you risk stirring up old-fashioned racist identity politics. That's something which you always run the risk of. But also just ignores the fact that a lot of these problems have to be tackled on a level of class, which is not only more unifying, but also a more useful way in order to address these issues. So yes, it's it's a quite a frightening agenda, but it's another thing which has basically gone from the college classroom to the White House in the stretch of a, a couple of years, basically, such as yeah. the speed with which all of this stuff has you know, come to the fore. Ella, let's um, you know bring the UK into this a little bit. There was a recent YouGov poll, which suggesting, just as Tom says, that you know there there is going to be you know these things are divisive, and the UK is nowhere near as far down the path as America is on on many of these kind of equity issues. So, thirty six percent of people think uh, race relations are deteriorating, and that, and that's up from nineteen percent before the BLM protests. What do you make of that? I think the biggest tragedy of the of the effect of the BLM protests and the fallout from the murder of George Floyd has been the, uh, you know, the pathologization of solidarity as a bad thing, because uh, there was a there was a tiny flicker of a moment directly after um, Floyd was killed, when people poured out onto the streets in London actually and across the UK as well as in America, and there were white kids, black kids together um, holding up signs. But very quickly that turned into, as we've covered on this podcast, you know, the kind of demands that white people either take a step back or speak up because (laughs) silence is violence, but do so in the right kind of way dictated by their black peers that they're not allowed to authentically engage in this discussion or have any say about what solutions would be put forward for a kind of anti-racist politics that this had to be very much the kind of as what Tom was talking about a level of positive discrimination that black people had to be up front and white people way in the back and that has had an effect on not just political solidarity 
but also social solidarity because one of the things that I, you know anecdotally lots of people have told me is that yes things have progressed in terms of we have a much less i mean it's kind of controversial to say this today but we do have a much less racist society than we did for our, for you know us around this table's our parents generation yeah. but people feel much more nervous around each other you know people feel much more nervous to break into you know for all the talk of multiculturalism and for all the talk of us you know in particular london being a melting pot it only takes you go down to finsbury park and up to the top of green lanes to know that people are in silos people are in people stick with their own clan uh, in terms of identity in terms of religion and that's that leads to the kind of fractious nature of of interaction today where everyone's sort of nervous that they'll say the wrong thing and that mm. ultimately ends up that no one talks to each other there's almost two things going on at the same time because notwithstanding the kind of broader problems of multiculturalism and stuff but when you look at the statistics around things like intermarriage you know mm. about the way in which more and more areas are becoming uh, more integrated you do have on some levels uh, you know reason for sort of hope you know you kind of think <laughs> that there's especially at this point in time given a lot of the bad old days are behind us you know some of those things can start to loosen up be tackled etc the problem is all of this Woke politics is pushing in precisely the opposite direction. It's saying you're much more together now, but you should be a bit nervous, a bit suspect. (laughs) You should, you know, watch out for them. You should be very cautious about what you say. You should be deferent in certain discussions, whatever it is, the signals that it sends. And it's just so incredibly corrosive, you know, and it's one of those things where I think, particularly in the UK context, one of the things that's been really regrettable is first of all, we've imported American racial debates in a way that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. I mean, the, the classic example is um, protesters in London sh- shouting, hands up, don't shoot at unarmed police. You know, that's yeah. a kind of simple point. But also it's just the way in which what we've kind of imported is just this never-ending, semi-religious approach to this issue, which is not really about tackling things in a concrete way. It's about reckoning with racism in some sort of vague way, reckoning with history. It's superficial. It's superficial. Mm, It's policing. And it's basically just premised on the idea that everyone has to accept, and in some cases, luxuriate in the idea that things are terrible. If anything, they're getting much worse when a lot of the indicators are actually quite Mm. good. The problem is, is the way in which we're being encouraged to look at these things, which not only guards against us actually making things better in the material sense, but also encourages a level of suspicion, sensitivity, awkwardness, and ultimately the reification of race as a really important category that society needs to be arranged around when everyone, if you'd have asked them five minutes ago, would have said that was something that we all agreed we had to move past at some point. Thank you for listening to The Spiked Podcast. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, make sure you keep up with all the latest from Spiked by signing up to our daily newsletter today on Spiked. Just go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters to sign up now.